preview in the book of Judges, but here we are. And so let me remind you of the story of Christmas. At the right time, according to God's plan, according to God's timetable, when God's people were languishing in darkness, still ruled over by foreigners under the judgment of God for their constant rebellion, God caused two miraculous pregnancies. The father of the first miraculous pregnancy, Zechariah the priest, provided a prophetic word that connected the birth of his own son with the birth of the Messiah. Zechariah's son would be called John, and he would become known for his baptizing people in the Jordan River. But Zechariah the priest spoke these words that we find recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 77 to 79, talking about John's calling. John's calling to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That sunrise was Jesus. While John was the product of a miraculous pregnancy, a pregnancy produced by the, by the parents of, uh, by parents who were well past childbearing age. Jesus was the product of a greater miraculous pregnancy, the product of a, the creative power of the Holy Spirit without the involvement of a human father. While John was to be the prophet who announced the arrival of salvation ahead of time, Jesus was to be the one who accomplished salvation through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. It is fair to say that both of these miraculous pregnancies are foreshadowed, surprisingly, in the book of Judges in one particular pregnancy that we'll read about this morning. The last of the judges is perhaps the most famous of the judges, and he is the only one whose conception and birth are recorded for us. Judges chapter 13 introduces us to the parents of Samson. And the story is, in many ways, the brightest point in the book. But... With this story, the narrator sets our expectations of Samson's career really, really high, only to then disappoint us thoroughly. So this morning, we're going to take the slow and gentle climb to the height of the mountaintop where the view will be breathtaking and wonderful. And then we'll take the next three weeks to plummet to the depths of Samson's life. So let's look at Judges chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. 
No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to Yahweh and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe." Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to Yahweh, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of Yahweh went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of Yahweh appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If Yahweh had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Machaneh Dan between Sorah and Eshtaol. The story begins with a familiar refrain as we've been reading through the book of Judges. The people of Israel again did evil in the sight of Yahweh. We might better understand what's being said here as the people of Israel continued to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh because they haven't really stopped uh, for a long time. 
Uh, We've seen no relief given to them truly. Uh, The last judges that we read about, we didn't read about any conflict in particular. And we remember the story of uh, Jephthah and how he delivered them from the hands of the Ammonites. But we're not told anywhere in the midst of that that Yahweh gave the people of Israel rest. And so it is this rest that is missing for the rest of the book of Judges. And we find the people of Israel continuing to do evil. That is to say, they are worshiping false gods, worshiping idols, and otherwise disobeying the Lord in every way. We see here not only the evil of Israel, but also the curse of barrenness. And so in response to the evil that the Israelites continue to do in the sight of Yahweh, he gives them over into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And that is the longest period of subjugation under a foreign power that we see in the period of the judges. Uh, And so Yahweh hands them over. But this is just simply God being faithful to his covenant promises. For he promised them covenant curses if they were to break his covenant, to be unfaithful to him, to disobey him, to do evil in his sight. You can read about those in your own time if you'd like. Leviticus 26 gives us some of them. Deuteronomy 28 gives us some of them. And in the midst of those two sections, you would read about how when the people of Israel disobey God's commandments, he would hand them over to foreign powers. But in Deuteronomy 28, you would also read one of the covenant curses was barrenness for their women. So this particular family, as the narrator kind of zooms in the camera on one home and one family, we find a particular woman experiencing the curse of the covenant, the curse of barrenness that her womb would not bear. We don't know for how long. We don't know much about the situation before this point, but what we don't see here is important. One of the things that we usually see when we read about barren women in the Old Testament, and there are several examples, is they are usually crying out to God asking for a baby. In one particular famous case, not only is she crying out to God, she's yelling at her husband, give me children or I'll die. Maybe you remember that story from the book of Genesis. But we don't see that here. We don't see the woman or husband crying out and complaining about not having any children. And we should wonder about that. And what we begin to see here, I think, is in this family, in this home, we're getting a a small picture, a microcosm, if you will, of the people of Israel and their state. Because as they sit under the subjugation of the Philistines, we don't see them crying out for help. We don't see them crying out for relief as they've done in the past. They are somewhat satisfied and okay with foreign rulers ruling over them. We'll see some more evidence of that in chapter 15 uh, as the story of Samson's life continues. The people of Israel seem to be happy with their overlords. And that is not a good thing. They're not crying out for God, to God. They're not asking for help. And neither does it seem this family is crying out. And so we continue in the story in verses 3 through 7. Yahweh sends his angel to the barren woman. Now what's interesting about this is again... They haven't called out for help. This is not a response to prayer. This is God on his own initiative stepping into the brokenness and the darkness of their world. Nobody asked him to do it. No one cried out and complained. He just did it. He just stepped in by his grace and offered 
a good thing to people who don't deserve it. That's a marvelous picture of our God. And isn't it how He always works? He steps in, He initiates, He sends His angel to the barren woman. Interestingly, she's not named in the story. She remains anonymous to us through the whole story. And yet she seems to be kind of the main character at this point in this little snapshot that we're given. The angel appears to her and tells her, Behold, you are barren and have borne no children. Okay, I think she knew that, right? The angel appears to her and announces that and then announces the promise that she's going to conceive and bear a son. That is something to be celebrated. A great promise given to her from the Lord through this angel who speaks with her. But then he adds some stipulations, some further instruction about how this is going to unfold. The baby is going to have a special status, if you will. Uh, she, the angel tells her that he is going to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And we're not going to turn there, but if you want to look at this later on, you can. Numbers chapter 6 gives the Mosaic legislation for what was required of a Nazarite. A Nazarite is a person who took on a special vow. It was given for opportunities where an Israelite wanted to voluntarily consecrate themselves in a special way for a short period of time. Numbers chapter 6 makes it clear that normally a person who wanted to become extra holy, if you will, wanted to consecrate themselves in a special way for a, for a period of time for certain reasons, would do three specific things. So there are three aspects of the Nazarite vow that are typical. One is that the, the person who takes on this vow is not to eat anything that comes from the vine. No grapes, no raisins, no wine, no unfermented grape juice, as though that were a thing in the ancient world. They're not allowed to drink anything or eat anything from the vine. Secondly, they're not allowed to touch anything that's dead. So that means if uh, a husband or a wife uh, takes, one of this, takes this vow on and their spouse drops dead in their home, they either have to leave immediately and not go anywhere near that body, or they have to touch it and prepare it for burial, and their Nazarite vow is over, nullified, ended. And there's a procedure given in number six for what to do in that case. So this is a special area of consecration, so that even if a, a family member dies, the Nazarite would refrain from going to the funeral. Even if they, if they wanted to maintain their special consecration before God, they would elevate it above even the funeral of a loved one in order to maintain that vow. The third stipulation for a Nazarite was that they were not allowed to cut their hair. They were not allowed to have a razor come upon their head, which means for men they can't trim their hair or trim their beards or trim their sideburns or anything. And they can't cut their hair. And a woman can't trim her hair in any way, do any kind of manicuring. So this becomes the visible sign to everybody that a person is under the Nazarite vow. They become a little shaggy in their appearance. And that is one way that they're communicating to the world that I'm especially holy. Now normally, <laughs> we don't tend to think that way in church. If someone showed up here particularly shaggy, particularly the preacher... Some people might laugh or wonder or even come up and say, you need to cut your hair. That hasn't happened here yet, um, but it has happened in my past. So um, <laughs> I have some experience with that. Nevertheless, that is the, that's the essentials of the Nazarite vow. 
So what the angel does here is something very unique and unusual. The angel says that this boy is going to be a Nazarite from the womb. When you read that phrase, you need to understand he means from the moment of conception. This is unusual. So this boy, this baby, is going to have this vow imposed on him by God. He doesn't get a choice in the matter. God has chosen him for this role. Now what we're going to see in the Samson story is as soon as he's old enough to begin to make choices, he's going to despise this calling and this vow. He's going to break every single piece of it repeatedly. He's going to think nothing of it. Nevertheless, the calling and the responsibility stands. And so God has chosen this boy for this role. We don't see a mention of avoiding dead things from the angel's words, but I think it's assumed given the legislation in Numbers chapter 6. And as the story unfolds, we're going to see that that's going to become an important feature of Samson's life. But the angel instead mentions don't drink any wine, don't eat anything from the grapevine, and don't cut his hair. What's interesting about this beyond the fact that this is being imposed on the boy is that the mother has special instruction. She's not allowed to eat from the vine. Now what's interesting about that is I think we have a kind of a, a subtle but genuine implication that the angel at least, and I think the Israelites more broadly, recognize the truth that what mommy eats, the baby eats, right? From conception, the baby is nourished by what the mother takes in. And so if she eats something from the grape, vine, then he is going to be eating something from the grapevine. So to preserve his Nazarite status from conception, even the mother is not allowed to eat from the vine. And so she's also not allowed to eat anything unclean. Now you might be thinking, well, isn't that normal for all Israelites? They're not supposed to eat anything unclean anyway. Why does he make a point to say this? Well, if you read that legislation, primarily in Leviticus 11, what you'll find is that, yeah, you get this long list of you can eat these things and not these things, but you also get statements about if you do, then you offer these certain sacrifices and then you're okay. So to eat something unclean, in one sense, is not that big of a deal. Now, later in the Jewish people, later on, like in Jesus' day with the Pharisees and then later on the rabbis, not eating unclean things became this huge, important deal. And it is important. It's in the legislation of the Mosaic Law. But if they ate something unclean, whether accidentally or intentionally, there were sacrifices they could offer and ritual washings that they could go through and they'd be clean the next day. And so I think what the angel is telling her is... You have to be extra careful that you don't even do that. There's not going to be a sacrifice that will allow you to eat something unclean and allow this Nazarite vow to stand. And so I think that's why it becomes an important part of the angel's instruction to both her and ultimately Samson. Uh, And then, uh, of course, the famous thing that he's not to cut his hair. So she's not to cut his hair as a boy and he's not to shave or cut his hair as a grown-up. Uh, it seems, as he grows older. But the last line of verse 5 is the most important piece. Outside of the Nazarite vow, what, what is this for? Why is this special conception and this special birth coming? He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. 
And right there, we're already getting kind of a tempering of our high expectations of Samson. He's only going to begin to save the people from the Philistine oppression. He's not going to finish the job. And so we already get a note from the beginning, before he's even conceived, that he will be a failure. Samson will be a failure. And that's exactly what we see. Samson will not finish the job of saving the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines, but he will start it. And we're going to see him starting lots of stuff as the story goes on. So the woman received this word from the angel, and her husband wasn't with her, so she goes to pass on the news in verses 6 through uh, 6 and 7. So she goes to him, and notice the way she characterizes the visitor. A man of God appeared to me. Manoah and his wife are being depicted here, both of them, as spiritually dull. They are not perceptive. They are unable to recognize the true identity of the figure who has appeared to them. She sees him as just a man of God, meaning a prophet. She sees him as a prophet, nothing more. Now, he's an impressive prophet. She says his his appearance is like the angel of God, very awesome. So what she's saying is he's... He's impressive and imposing and intimidating. And he was so intimidating, I didn't ask him where he was from. I didn't dare ask him his name. But notice that she does believe what he says. She does believe what he says. So to give both Manoah and his wife credit in this story, they do believe the message. They do believe that this conception and this birth is going to happen. But they don't recognize the angelic uh, identity of this figure who's talking with But notice the way she relays the message to her husband here. She leaves out an important detail and she adds an important detail. In the end of verse 7, she says that the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. The angel did not tell her that. Now maybe she inferred from the angel's message that his vow was going to be lifelong. But that is very unusual. Most of the time, a Nazarite vow is for a short period of time. But she infers that it's going to be lifelong. But she doesn't tell her husband the mission of the boy. She doesn't tell her husband that he's going to begin to save the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. She leaves that detail out for some reason. Maybe she was just so excited with the prospect of having a baby that she didn't get all the details in. That seems understandable, right? Um, but either way, she doesn't tell him that piece, of the de- that piece of the message. But for you and me, as we read the story, we know more than they do, right? We're supposed to know more about what's going on than they, the characters in the story. And we're supposed to read both of those statements, I think, together. So the angel said, he shall begin to save the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The wife tells her husband that he's going to be a Nazarite to God to the day of his death. We should connect those pieces to recognize that he will begin to save the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines through the day of his death. So that it's through the death of Samson that God will use him to deliver the people of Israel, to begin to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Well, given that the message is incomplete and the husband is confused, we get verses 8 through Uh, 8-14, through Yahweh sends his angel to confirm the good news. So Manoah does the right thing here. They don't know who this person is. They think he's a prophet. They don't know who he is or where he's from. So how are they going to get him to come back? Well, if he's a prophet, then he answers to Yahweh. So we should pray. So we pray, Yahweh, to the Lord, O Lord, please let the man of God, the man of God, 
whom you sent, come to us again and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. So Manoah wants confirmation. I mean, if you think about it, his wife has been barren for some time, and whether she's prayed about it or not, surely she wants a baby. And you can imagine a scenario where in her deep desire and grief about not having a child, she might imagine something like an angelic visitor that told me I was going to have a baby just out of the deep hope and the deep wishful thinking. And so the husband might be a little bit tending to doubt her word or to wonder, did this really happen? And so he wants confirmation of all of this. But there might be a little bit of jealousy on Manoah's part. Why didn't the angel appear to me? I'm the head of the household. Why did he appear just to my wife if this was true? And so he, he might be experiencing a little bit of natural jealousy and uncertainty about what's going on, but he does the right thing in that. He prays, and he asks God to confirm it, and God graciously does it. He listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel comes again. But notice, the angel comes to the wife again. <laughs> the angel comes to the wife. Manoah wants the visitor to him. He says to us, but he's wanting confirmation. And I think the angel, God sends the angel back to the woman again to kind of subtly suggest to Manoah, you need to trust your wife. You need to believe that she's telling you the truth on this. But nevertheless, God sends the angel again, graciously says, okay, you need confirmation. I'm going to give it to you this time. And so then the woman goes to get her husband again, brings him out there, and they engage with him and notice the way that Manoah addresses him. There in uh, verse 11, are you the man who spoke to this woman? It's a reasonable question, I suppose. And the angel answers him very curtly. It's hard to see that in English, but in Hebrew it's just one word. It's just the pronoun I. He basically just says, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And then Manoah, to his credit, seems to believe that the message is going to be true. When your words come true, he says in verse 12, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? So, So Manoah wants more information. He wants clarity. And don't we all relate to him? We want God to tell us exactly what's going to happen in the next moment. We want God to show us exactly what to do from day to day, don't we? Well, too bad. God doesn't. And the angel here is just incredibly frustrating, frankly. He doesn't give Manoah what he wants through the whole encounter. And just as a side note, if you pay a close attention to angels and their interactions with people in the Old Testament, they are incredibly annoying. I think I first saw this studying the prophetic book of Zechariah. The first six chapters of the book of Zechariah are a series of dreams that Zechariah the prophet experienced seemingly over the course of one really bad night. And in the midst of those dreams, he interacts with an angel and he keeps asking the angel to explain things to him. And if you read the explanations that the angels give, you're not helping. The angel's not giving any more explanation. And sometimes the answers he gives are more obscure than the dream he saw in the first place. So, I don't know. Angels can be a little bit condescending. I I don't know. Truly, they are giving us only what God wants us to have, nothing more. But it seems like they're jerks about it sometimes. (laughs) Anyway, Manoah doesn't get what he wants. The angel basically just repeats himself, and he doesn't give the key detail that the woman left out. 
that he is to begin to save the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The angel doesn't tell him that. Still, he still doesn't know what he wants to know. So we press on into verses 15 to 21, and Manoah keeps on interacting with this evasive angel in verses 15 to 21. He basically says, well, let me serve you dinner. Let me cook a meal for you. And I think his hope is, well, maybe I can get him, you know, full and satisfied and drink a little wine and maybe his lips will get a bit, a little bit loose and he'll get comfortable and he'll tell me what I want to know. But of course, the angel is not going to bend. Six, verse 16, the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, if you detain me, if you keep me here, I'm not going to eat your food. But if you're just bent on cooking something, why don't you cook up a burnt offering and give it to Yahweh And then the narrator, just in case we weren't following along really well, the narrator inserts this little parenthetical comment at the end of verse 16, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Yahweh. Well, yeah, that seems pretty evident. He doesn't know who he's talking to. He thinks he's just talking to a prophet. And he almost, he seems like he thinks he can manipulate him and get him to give him what he wants. But, nope, not going to happen. So he goes on and he goes one step further in verse 17. He asks him for his name. Why don't you, can you, what's your name? And you got to wonder. There's a little bit of a, a background here that, that might influence us to think that Manoah wants to know his name as almost like a, a power move. If he can address him by his first name, if he can directly address him by name, maybe he can exert some pressure or some authority. Uh, in business communication, that's actually kind of a practice that is taught in business communication, that if you look somebody in the eye and you address them by name, maybe even repeatedly, you have a way of exerting your authority. And I wonder if Manoah's fishing around for something like that. Well, again, the angel's not going to give him what he wants. Verse 18, the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why do you ask my name? And this sentence in Hebrew is really hard to bring over into English clearly, but the the point is really clear. He's basically saying, why do you want to know my name? It is, my name is wonderful. The word he uses here, I I don't think he's saying, that's my name, call me wonderful, um, or Mr. Wonder. I don't think that's it. Um, The word that he uses here is a word that's often used to describe God's miracles. They are wonders. And this word sometimes gets used to describe God's ways. And the word means full of wonder. That is to say, the only response a human being can give to it is wonder. Because it's beyond our understanding. And so I think the point is, he's saying two things. The angel's saying, if I give you my name, it won't help you. It won't give you an advantage. It won't do anything for you because... It's way bigger than you. It's above your pay grade. It's way beyond your comprehension, and it certainly is not going to give you an upper hand in this interchange. So at that point, Manoah kind of gives up. He does what the angel says. He brings the goat and some grain to make a grain offering, burns it up on the rock there as an offering to Yahweh. But notice in verse 19 the way the narrator describes God. This becomes, I think, the key to understanding this little interaction. In verse 19, Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to Yahweh, to the one who works wonders. That's a related word to the word wonderful that we just encountered from the angel's lips. 
So the idea is, I think, the narrator's telling us, Manoah's focus should be on Yahweh and not the angel. On Yahweh and what he does. He works wonders like granting conception to a barren woman or like what's about to happen in the rest of the story. The focus of Manoah is in the wrong place. He's focusing on the messenger. He wants information, and he's elevated that desire for information above his desire for God himself. Pretty common problem, wouldn't you say? And so Manoah and his wife were watching. In verse, 20, in verse 19 and verse 20, you get that phrase repeated. So the narrator wants us to, to kind of hone in on Manoah and his wife were watching what was happening. And then, this is what they see. Uh, The fire is blazing on the altar, burning up the goat and the grain. And remember, they think he's just a man. Okay, so put yourself in their sandals for just a moment. They see this prophet, this man, climb up on the altar in the midst of the fire. (laughs) And then he ascends in the flames. So if I were there, I'd probably do what they did. Fall down on my face. Um, So what they see is what appears to be a man stepping into the fire and not getting hurt, not getting burned, and then ascending into heaven. And then the narrator tells us that's when Manoah recognized that this was the angel of Yahweh. So it took him stepping into the fire and not being burned up in order for Manoah to realize who he had been dealing with. And then immediately he draws an interesting conclusion from this reality. And we get this nice interchange between, between Manoah and his wife in verses 22 and 23. And we see the good sense of Manoah's wife here. But Manoah immediately thinks they're going to die. He says, we're going to die because we've seen God. So given what he saw, the man ascending into heaven without being burned up, I wonder if he's thinking of the burning bush story in Exodus chapter 3. I mean, there you get the angel of Yahweh appearing to Moses in a bush. There's fire and the bush is burned but not consumed, not burned up. And I wonder if Manoah is remembering that story and how Moses was afraid for his life too in that situation. And here he comes face to face with this reality and he assumes, oh my gosh, we've seen God in the form of this angel in some fashion. And he concludes, we're going to die. We're going to die. Well, his wife is eminently logical here. It's interesting that she alleviates his fear with logic. I could chase a rabbit on that for a long time, but I'm not going to do it. But it's interesting how often that happens in the Bible. Logic is the way to address someone's emotion of fear biblically. It's like repeated all over the place. But I'm not going to chase that rabbit for now. So it is that she says in verse 23, If Yahweh had meant to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. He accepted the offering... And he had promised them that they were going to have a baby. Well, if he kills them, they can't have a baby. That's pretty reasonable. And we don't know how Manoah responds to her words here. We don't know whether that satisfied him or whether he continued being unsettled. But she is right. She is correct in her gentle and respectful correction of her husband here. Uh, And so she presents very good sense to try to assuage his fears. And then verse 24 and 25 give us the sunny fulfillment of the good news. 
in Samson. The woman bore a son. So the narrator fast forward nine months or thereabouts, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Now, the word sunny in this point in your outline is intentional. She names her boy Samson, or in the Hebrew it's Shimshon. Shimshon. And Shimshon is related to the Hebrew word Shemesh. And Shemesh means the sun, like S-U-N. Now, it's at this point we have to raise a question. Why does she name her boy Son? There's a couple of reasons. There's a positive way to look at that and a negative way to look at that. It's hard not to think negatively here. She names her boy Son, and just a couple of miles away from this location where the boy is born, there's a place called Beth Shemesh. And Beth Shemesh means house of the sun or temple of the sun. And it is known during this period and all through ancient history that the Canaanites, the Philistines, worshipped the sun at this particular location. It's hard not to think maybe that this woman is naming her boy in honor of the sun god instead of the true god. And the reason I say that is when you see these miraculous pregnancies, so here's one that's happening almost at the same time. Uh, Just a few years later, in the lifetime of Samson, I think, you're going to get another barren woman who bears a son in 1 Samuel. Samuel is the boy. Hannah cries out in her pregnancy and are in her barrenness, and God grants her a gift of conception. During Samson's lifetime, I think, she names her boy Samuel. And that L on the end of his name is a title for God. And so that barren woman named her son with a name that honors God. And so often in the Bible, these characters name their children with If you see in your English Bible a name that ends with the letters I-A-H or J-A-H, that is an indication to you that Yahweh is in the midst of their name, that they named their child in some way after Yahweh. So Zechariah, Isaiah, Malachi, not Malachi. Um, You can think of all the others. There are a bunch of them. But that Yah ending or Jah, like Elijah, is Yahweh in the midst of their name. And it's just interesting that she doesn't name him that way here. We would expect that maybe she would, but she doesn't. The positive way to spin this and to think about it is that she sees in her son and his mission the dawn of a new day, the dawn of salvation for the people of Israel. He's going to begin to save the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so she names him after the sunrise in a metaphorical way. Maybe that is her thought process. But either way, what we're going to see is that this sunny boy, little sunshine, is going to have a cloud over his life the whole time. Everything that we read about him is going to, be, is going to have dark contours. And so it's almost as though in her hope, if it is indeed in her hope, that this boy would rise up as the sun to bring light and heat to the people in salvation... His whole mission and his whole involvement is going to be covered over with a dark storm cloud. And he's going to bring much thunder 
and storm and damage in the midst of his life. All of those things might be at play at some level. Well, then we read, the young man grew and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him. Now, we're going to read about Samson, and we're going to read many times, several times, where the spirit comes upon him in a certain way. In fact, the word that's going to be used repeatedly in Samson's story is that the spirit will rush upon him. That is a very violent word. And it has the idea of like a tornado rushing in. And the Spirit coming over him. This is unique in the book of Judges. We've seen the Spirit come upon a few judges. And we've seen Gideon clothed with the Spirit. Much more gentle imagery. But with Samson, the Spirit's going to rush upon him. And here, this kind of summary statement early in his life, the Spirit of Yahweh began to stir him. And that's another word we could take positively or negatively. We might like to think that he's being stirred up by the Spirit, like in the, in the sense of being motivated or moved to act for God's purposes. Like when I preach, I want to motivate and move you to obey God. That's a good... I want you to be stirred so that you obey God. But most of the time, when this word is used in the Old Testament, it has a negative connotation. And it's usually translated to disturb or annoy, or pester. So think about that. The Spirit of Yahweh began to pester Samson. We might, again, we might like to think, well, maybe it's like when Paul walks through the city of Athens and he sees all the idolatry around him and he's disturbed so that he then preaches the gospel to the Athenians there. But it seems a little bit more likely that what's going on here is the Spirit is disturbing or troubling Samson in such a way that he's restless. Ironically, his father's name, Manoah, might remind you of another more famous biblical character early on, guy built a big boat, Noah. His name means rest. And that's exactly what the people of Israel are missing during this period. And so that boy's mama named him Rest, maybe in the hope that... Again, God would bring rest to the people, but that is not what's going to happen. Samson is going to prove to be incredibly restless in himself. And in that way, he is very much a picture of the people of Israel. We'll see more about that in the weeks to come. But in his restlessness, we're going to see him seeking to satisfy that with Philistine women. He's going to feel disturbed and troubled and agitated... And I think that agitation is moved by the Spirit. And he's going to take that feeling of disturbance and he's going to go try to seek to satisfy it and alleviate it with Philistine women. And if we think, if we start having a brain break because of that and have trouble kind of fitting that together, that the Spirit is pushing him and then he moves on into wickedness and and, and evil, the same kind of evil that the people of Israel were committing. The narrator is going to step in in chapter 14 again when it happens and say they did not know, Samson's parents didn't realize that Yahweh was using this to seek an opportunity against the Philistines. And so very much we see God using what is truly evil to accomplish good. And I hope you have a place for that in your theology. You can't understand the gospel if you don't. 
God takes what is truly evil. In fact, he takes the greatest evil, the murder of the Son of God, and accomplishes the greatest, most ultimate good through it. And I'm convinced that that's not just true on the large scale of salvation. I'm convinced that that's true in your life every single day. And it's significant that the Bible returns to this theme over and over and over and over again that paints a picture of a God that is so good, so good, that He can take what is truly evil and use it to accomplish His good purposes. You're going to see that happen in Samson's life. And whether you know it or not, you've been seeing it happen in your own life. If you can grasp that, if you can believe that, that will help you endure the bad things that you experience in your life. Well, what do we take away from this miraculous pregnancy story? It is a sweet story. And I've been more happy about preaching this passage than I have any of the others in Judges so far. (laughs) It is a bright moment in the story. And I think what moves me so much and what thrills me so much from this story is you see a picture of God's grace here. God's grace from start to finish and everything in between. And that's really what we've been seeing throughout the book of Judges. But let me pull three points from this particular story to close out our time this morning. Where we see God's grace from start to finish and everything in between. Number one, God is the initiator of salvation. He saves even when people are not looking for Him. In fact, that's the only way He saves. The Bible tells us repeatedly that no one seeks God. Paul famously in Romans 3 mentions that and elaborates on that, but he's actually quoting from the Old Testament there. That the consistent testimony of Scripture is that no human being is actually looking for God, the true God. Now, we think about our experience, we think about the people we know, we think about stories we hear from missionaries overseas, and we think, well, it sure seems like people are looking for God in some places, or maybe I was looking for God. Well, the reality seems, if we kind of, pull a biblical lens over our eyes to interpret those experiences, people are looking for all kinds of things. They're looking for spiritual fulfillment. They're looking for relief from their suffering. And some of them are even looking for uh, an escape from an anticipated judgment on the last day. But they're not looking for any of those things in the true God. They're looking to find that anywhere else they can. And you were too. If you were looking for anything at all, you were looking for it everywhere but in the one place it can be found. How did that change? God Himself stepped into your life. God Himself initiated something with you. It's never the other way around. When God saves people, He always makes the first move. And not just the first move at the beginning, but the first move all the time. God is the one who initiates your growth. God is the one who initiates your glory on the last day. He is the one who moves in even when you're not looking for Him. And glory to God that He does it because if He didn't, all would be condemned to hell forever. No human being would be saved if he didn't do it this way. If God didn't initiate, if God didn't step in, no one would find him. We're all looking for life, salvation, whatever we mean by that, everywhere else. We don't want it God's way. We want it any other way we can find it. But this is the way. God must initiate it. God must be the one who moves in, and he does. 
solely by His grace. It's exactly what happens in this story. Manoah and his wife don't seem to have been crying out for a baby. And just in that small sense, I don't mean to minimize the reality of childlessness in any way whatsoever, but they weren't even asking Him for that. And then in the people of Israel more broadly, they're under the thumb of the Philistines and they seem to be okay with it. They're not asking, God, please save us from this, like they have done in the past. He steps in anyway. He moves in anyway. And that's the way he always works. A second point we can pull from this story, thinking about Manoah's reaction to his encounter with this angel of Yahweh, seeing God in the Scriptures results in either death or transformation. Manoah's instinct was right to expect that he was going to die. When Moses asked to see Yahweh's glory... Yahweh told him in Exodus 33, 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then the Apostle Paul described God in 1 Timothy 6, 16 as the one who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, when we read statements like that, we have to hold it in tension with the reality that the Bible repeatedly speaks of people seeing God. How do you figure? (laughs) The Old Testament itself has many statements about people seeing God or seeing God's glory. How do you hold those two things together? Well, essentially, by nature, sinful people... If they look at God, they will die unless He does something to protect them. Unless He does something to preserve them. The Moses story in Exodus 33. God does indeed show him at least a a glimpse of His glory, the backside of His glory as it were. But what did He do before that? He moved him into the cleft of the rock. He put him in a cave. So he has to kind of look around and see the reflection of it almost so that he won't die. And so whenever somebody is said to have seen God, we have to add the phrase in our minds, in a certain sense. They saw Him truly, but not fully. And none of us do. And none of us are able to, because the sight would kill us. But the very thing that would destroy us is the very thing that God gives to us to change us. The Apostle Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, tells us all about it. You want to know how growth happens in the Christian life? This is it, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You and I, if you're a follower of Jesus... You're believing in Jesus today. You are being glorified right now. That's not just a future thing that you're waiting for on the last day. God is doing it now, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. How does it happen? It happens as we behold, see, look upon, gaze at the glory of the Lord. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, Six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
So how do we see the glory of the Lord? We see it in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, how does that help us? He's not here in the flesh anymore. He's not here for us to see face to face with our eyeballs. So how can that be? Well, he actually already told us, but I skipped it for rhetorical effect. <laughs> Two verses earlier, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Where do you see the face of Jesus? You see it in the gospel. Where do you see the glory of the Lord that changes you? In the gospel. That's the key. Christians, followers of Jesus, you need to keep looking at the cross. You need to keep looking at the resurrection. You need to keep looking at the gospel. That is where you can see Jesus. You want to see Him? You don't look anywhere else. You look at Him in the gospel. Now that that doesn't just mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That doesn't just mean the New Testament. My deepest ministry conviction, in fact, it's, it's what gets me up in the morning every day, not just on Sundays, is that this whole book, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, gives us the contours of the gospel. And so my heart is to proclaim that gospel from wherever we are. My deep conviction is that every passage of Scripture, the genealogies that are so boring to read for us, the legislation that's sometimes gross for us to think about in the Mosaic Law, all of it gives us an insight into the gospel, a piece of the gospel that we need for our Christian life. And God uses all of it as we tie those threads together to conform us into the image of His Son. And so we have to keep looking. We have to keep looking at the gospel. That is how you grow. One final point, and then we'll go to celebrating communion together. From this story, at the very end, as Samson is introduced to us, we should see a little bit of a point here that will come back up again as we go through the story. Human sinfulness does not prevent God from blessing or using a person. Text says there in verse 24 of Judges 13, Yahweh blessed him. Samson was a bad guy. Sinful. Ugly. He is a villain in this story. And yet, Yahweh blessed him. I'll let that cook your noodle for a little while. There is a relationship between blessing and obedience, but don't think about it with mathematical precision. There's not a formula in the Scriptures that if you obey, God is bound to bless you. And if you disobey, God is bound not to bless you. Folks, if that were true, none of us would ever receive God's blessing. Do you know yourself well enough to know that? Moment by moment, we are sinning, (laughs) we are broken, we are failing to measure up, and yet God blesses us. That's the definition of grace. If it were just, just, just based on my obedience, I would never experience the blessing of God. But by His grace, He blesses us anyway. Now, there are warnings in Scripture that we need to take heed of, that we should be seeking to obey God. But folks, if I can't remember if it was Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon who made the point that if you're preaching the gospel of God's grace faithfully, then you're going to get the response that Paul got in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because that sure sounds like what Paul was saying at the end of Romans 5. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, And that's what I'm telling you. Your sinfulness, your failures doesn't stop God from blessing you. The reason that you don't experience the kind of growth you expect is not because you're holding God back. You don't have that kind of power, puny person. (laughs) I don't either. The Spirit of God is omnipotent. And I know what we're saying when we say he's a gentleman. I get the point of that. But that is bad theology by itself. God is not a gentleman in the sense that he's just waiting for us to respond rightly and then he'll do something in your lives. That is not true. That's not the picture of God we get in the scriptures. He's not waiting for you to get everything right. He's not waiting for you to get your theology figured out. He's not waiting for you to get your obedience straightened out before he'll do good in your life. He's not waiting for you. He is the initiator of it all. If you grow at all in your Christian life, it's because God has made the first move. It's because God has poured out his grace on you. He's not waiting for you to figure it out because you're not gonna. He's not waiting for you to check off the right boxes. He blesses us even when we're checking off the wrong boxes, even when our theology is skewed, even when we're believing the wrong things. If there's a genuine, real relationship with Jesus, that doesn't mean we know all the answers on the theology quiz. That doesn't mean we understand the scriptures 100% rightly. None of us do, and none of us will in this lifetime. He's not waiting for that to happen. Instead, He's helping us along the way. As we stumble along in this life, you can be sure, you can bank on this. God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 God is working in you right now, even if you are in the midst of disobedience, even if if you are in the midst of failure. God is working in you. And if you ever get to the point where you want to do what pleases God, it's because He's working in you. And if you ever get to the point where you do anything that pleases God, it's because He is working in you. Let's pray. Father, we see a picture here of Your amazing grace. And we want to marvel. We want to revel. We want to celebrate. We want to give thanks. And we pray that You would press that deep and deeper into our hearts and into our thinking So that moment by moment and day by day as we struggle with suffering, as we struggle with sin, we cling to you because you are our only hope. You are the only hope that we have that we can experience life and blessing. We pray that you would grow us. We pray that you would change us. Encounter us by your spirit. Meet us where we are so that you might take us where you want us to be. Don't leave us to ourselves. Thank you that you love us enough not to do that very thing. We rejoice in you this morning because you have done a great work in our lives and you've done a great work in the world by sending your son to die for us. Would you deepen our gratitude for that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.